Okay, if you would please turn to 1 John. I'll be reading 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. 1 John 4, 12 through 16. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him or her. Blessed is the reading of God's superintended, infallible, inerrant word through Jesus' personally chosen apostle, John. Let's pray. Father, may every ear in here hear these words with that attitude. It is your word delivered through your sent one, your eyewitness, John the son of Zebedee. May we prove to be those who were born of you because we hear, because we confess the truth of the apostles, and because we love one another. Do this. Do it, do it by your Spirit and because of the words of the explication of this text. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old saying, it goes like this, redundancy is the handmaiden of good pedagogy. Go remember that one, all right? All right, what it means is that repeating oneself over and over is a huge help to teaching people. And if that is true, if that's the case, the Apostle John is a great teacher because he has been driving the same point in one way or another home again and again and again in this short letter, which at its core is this. He wants believers to have an assurance of their salvation. It's one thing to be saved, but He wants you, if you are saved, to know it. Be assured of it. And so that's the question that our text raises for us this morning. Do you know that you, not in general Jesus saves, but that you are 
being saved by Christ. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Okay, stop for a moment. See, that language there, John uses that language, that kind of language, at least ten times in this short letter. This is how you know. By this you know. He lays it out. By this you can be assured and know whether a person professing Christ or not is actually a Christian or not, whether you are a Christian or not. John's goal in this letter is not to cause insecurity in the family of God. It is not to cause a real fearful insecurity in believers. His whole goal is to produce a deep surety, a deep conviction that one is saved because of the Holy Spirit working in them. That lets them know not merely that Jesus died for sinners so that we can be saved, but that He died for me. I'm one of them. I see the evidences in my life that He has died for me. That's John's goal. Now, I became a Christian in 1981, and it didn't take but within the first year to figure out I don't look at it the same way I do now. I was getting kind of confused because I would read the Bible and then I would just hear what we're supposed to believe. But, but as an early Christian, just in the air everywhere was this idea that text like John in 1 John that we're reading week after week after week after week have nothing to do with whether you're going to heaven or not. They have nothing to do with whether you are a Christian or not. You're a Christian because you say so. You asked Jesus to come into your heart. You said a prayer, joined church. That's settled. And therefore, texts like these through John and all through Paul and through Jesus' words are put into another category called discipleship called true or deeper spirituality or the deeper spiritual life. Some Christians are all going to heaven, but some walk with Jesus, and others just don't really walk with Jesus. That was just in the air of the 1980s, and it's around today, and some of you know, because you got lots of Christian friends and they hear different things, and you're wondering, where does it come from? And that kind of thinking was not by accident. It came from a widespread theology that has infiltrated much of, if you know a little bit of American history, much of American fundamentalism and American evangelicalism over the last 100 years. 
Now, years ago, I remember working through John MacArthur's uh, books, The Gospel According to Jesus, which he wrote in the late 80s, I believe, and then after that, The Gospel According to the Apostles. And I summarize the essence of it because MacArthur would give quote after quote after quote from popular books that everyone's buying in their bookstores of what these evangelical Christians are saying Christianity is. So here's a summary that I wrote down a number of years ago from his books. Essentially, MacArthur concludes, repentance, according to this idea, is a change of mind about Christ. That's it. And thus, turning from sin is not a requirement for salvation. Or, the teaching goes, salvation happens in a momentary act of faith and the conclusion, I mean, I don't disagree with that, but when, then the conclusion is drawn, which I do disagree with, that therefore a true Christian can, down the road, stop even believing in Jesus, but they're going to go to heaven because they came to faith. Or the teaching essentially goes, only the judicial aspects of salvation that are happening in God's judgment room concerning Christians, only those things are guaranteed for believers in this life, like justification before God, or imputed righteousness, or positional sanctification set apart by God. That's guaranteed. But practical sanctification, like growing in holiness, growing in loving others, that spiritual growth, not necessarily guaranteed. That's why if you, the young ones, you don't even know these words probably because most of us when we became Christians, if we're older, had King James was still the language of it, which is beautiful there. And there was this word called carnal. And carnal is how they translated in the Old English the word flesh or sarx in Greek. Instead of just translating it flesh, they translate carnal. And there was this term, oh, he's a carnal Christian. He's Christian, just a carnal one, which means... Yes, they profess Christ, and yes, there's no real change in their life, and they live just like an unbeliever, but they change their mind about Jesus and agree that he's the Savior, so he saves. That's how it goes. And just one more. The teaching essentially goes that disobedience and prolonged sin are no reason to doubt the reality of one's salvation. Those who have once believed are secure forever. Even if they abandon Christ's body, the church, live in outright moral disobedience in an unrepentant way. And so we have had, for at least the last 100 years, in the American Protestant evangelical fundamental church world, this idea of, oh, here's Christianity. I believe that I really don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And I agree that God sent Jesus to be the Savior so that I or someone else doesn't have to. And then 
The vast majority of the rest of the New Testament is in a different category. It's just the category of Christian growth or Christian discipleship. And so came about the teaching that people can have Jesus as the Savior of their soul and from eternal hell and to go to heaven without ever having Jesus as their Lord. The one they adore as their ruler and king and through obedience. And so abiding in Christ, in other words, in this doctrine, it has nothing to do with whether one is saved or not. Abiding in Christ is only about whether you're a deep spiritual Christian, whether you're being discipled or not. Some are, and some Christians aren't. hundred years of that teaching has really made it difficult to preach the gospel to church-going people. They can read the same text, and because they already have a system of theology in their head, it just doesn't affect them. For instance, Jesus says in John 15, 6, and I'm going to go here for a minute because it's the exact same word, and guess who wrote this? John, the son of Zebedee, same one who's writing the letter. Okay, And so, John was very influenced by Jesus, by the way. And Jesus said, if anyone does not abide, meno in the Greek, remain, abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Okay. That's not a different category than salvation. When John uses language like he abiding in you and you in him, this is exactly what John has on his mind, that abiding in Christ does not refer to some super spiritual Christian as opposed to all the rest, but it refers to whether you are in the vine or whether you will be burned in the end. So, let's go to our text and see the flow of what John is doing back here in 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to start with verse 12 for a minute. I know we kind of ended there last week, but I want, we've got to see the connection of what he's doing. John writes, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected. It's a perfect... It is being perfected and worked out in us. Okay. You just think. Bang your head. Why? Why did John throw in this line? No one has ever seen God. Why do you got to add that? Why? What's, I, so you, you want to get in the mind. What, what does he mean? I want no meaning. What's happening? And, I, and I think the best answer is because John knows the nagging question. How can a person be sure 
that they are in union with God through Christ by the Spirit. How can you be sure? You can't see Him. You see, it would be really easy if the test were, if you are connected and united and tied up with Steve, with ropes, you can say, Steve, and here I am. It's Joe and Steve. We're tied up. It's, you can see him. The gospel goes out, and it creates all kinds of effects. Jesus would talk about this, about the gospel of the kingdom. Some good, some deceptive. You can't see God like you see Steve. And so, John's point is that God's overflow of love, and remember from last week, you'll say it again this week in the text, God is love. The very love that God has for God, God the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father, dwells in you, and you can see the effects, though you can't see God who is Spirit. And those effects are the proof that God abides in you. It shows His love is being worked out in you by spilling over in loving other believers. That is, we can be sure that we're in union with Him whom we cannot see because the love we have for each other is the very presence of the love of God Himself dwelling in us in the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. Now, it's not a new paragraph really. The next verse he says the same thing. He just says it in different words. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him. And He abides, remains, is living in us. Because He has given us His Spirit. Same thing He just said. Different words. The Holy Spirit is the love of God bearing fruit in those who have been made one with the Spirit by new birth in union. And so John here is explicit that one main evidence of salvation is that union with God by the Holy Spirit cannot remain hidden, concealed. It can't. The person of the Holy Spirit lives in a believer. And thus a believer senses God the Spirit in them. And that Holy Spirit testifying to our spirits as we saw a couple weeks ago is producing something that was not natural. A care. A concern. Love for others who are also born of that same one Holy Spirit. So as you walk in the light and you see that fruit, here's John's point. Then believer, your assurance of your salvation is to grow. On the other hand, 
when your flesh, and this is part of what happens in Christians' lives, when your flesh starts to supersede the work of the Spirit in you and is producing disobedience and it cuts off the flow of love in your life towards others, then if, if you're reading Scripture correctly, you are meant to start to lose your assurance to the point where if you're a true believer, you'll cry out to the Father, Oh, draw me close to You. Create in me a new, clean heart. Cause Your love to flow through me today. Work out Your fruit in me. That's the Christian life. That's basic Christianity. That's what John's all about. And it's the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul is all about. They both believe the Christian life is the same thing. Yes, we're not talking about justification by faith alone here. At that moment of, of salvation where you've been born again, it's all set and sealed and you're secured. They're talking about now, who are those people and that faith that connects you with Christ, puts you into Christ, and thus God justifies you? What does their life in its messy ways look like down here? So I want you to turn just for a few moments to 1 Thessalonians. Turn to Paul's letter first letter to the Thessalonians. Now, when you read Acts, you can find this out in the book of Acts that Luke gives us. Paul and Timothy and Silas and his missionary band planted the church in the city of Thessalonica. And then within weeks, there was a lot of turmoil in this city. They wanted Paul and his guys dead. Some Jews believed Many Gentiles believed. They're teaching. They're giving them the gospel. They're opening up the Hebrew scriptures. And eventually, Paul, when I say eventually, within probably two months, they had to get Paul out of town. It was too dangerous. And he had to leave. So he ends up eventually in Greece. And so, from the time the gospel came to these people in this town, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians within six months from their conversion. Now here's the question. Paul, what makes you so sure these persons are Christians? What gives you an assurance that they are chosen by God, that they are saved? That's the question. So start with verse 4 of chapter 1. Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, we know what? We know that He, God, has chosen you. How do you know? Because our Gospel there's a message about the historical figure of Jesus Christ and the implications of His death and His resurrection. Our gospel came to you 
not only in word, but something was happening while we preached the word. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit. How do you know the Holy Spirit was working in them, Paul? That's what he means here. Because it came with full conviction. That's not Paul's conviction. It's not the Holy Spirit was convicted of the truth of Jesus. That was the conviction in these sinners concerning the truth, which told Paul that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on, he says, And what happened was this, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction. There was a lot of persecution. But you did this with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all the believers in the region of Macedonia and Achaia. Paul says, I can see God! No, 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 not physically. I can see the effects of the saving work of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, I've skipped verse 3, so go back there. Because this is the real evidence as he's laying out, because he just says it up front. How do you know, Paul, their profession of, we want to be Christians? How do you know it's genuine? How do you know it's the work of the Spirit? How do you know it's with full conviction in their heart? Verse 3. He talks about, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, Thessalonians. Remembering before our God and Father something I saw. Your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. So, the faith in Jesus in the midst of actually hard times. It wasn't easy to believe. It caused you problems if you're a Thessalonian in that town. Especially for some of those Jews who believed. Go read Acts. But it didn't stop you. You were overwhelmed with a joy in the object of your new affections. Jesus Christ. And that faith Paul says, was working itself out in loving others. That's how Paul knows that God has chosen them, has saved them. Now, Paul never means, John never means, that in this life we, that where we still live in the mortal flesh, where we still carry about in our bodies sin nature, that when the Holy Spirit comes in and invades our heart, the Spirit is there who never was before producing something. He never means perfection. He never means perfect faith. That's perfect. No room to grow here. He never means perfect love in your heart and in your actions towards others. But He means real love. And he means real faith. We know this because if you look at, just flip, you don't even have to turn the page probably to chapter 3. 
of 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes, starting with verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. It's not perfect. There's always a lot of room to grow. But it's genuine. And then a couple months later, he writes them another letter, 2 Thessalonians. And he begins it this way in the body of the letter in verse 3 of chapter 1. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing. And it's growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Okay. Paul's idea of what saving faith is and what the Christian life looks like is the same idea of the Apostle John. That the evidence of salvation through the gospel of Christ is that there is a faith that is growing, it's increasing, and there is a love for other believers that is growing in the persons. Okay. And, and that's what, why John, and we saw it a few weeks back, in chapter 3 now, 1 John, where he summarized it this way. Verse 23, chapter 3. And this is the, or his commandment, that we believe, that's one, in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as Jesus has commanded us. Okay, so so far now in 12 and 13, John has spoken of the evidence, mainly here, of love for one another. Now, starting with verse 14, John brings in the other evidence that is inseparable from love. It's actually the root of love. And that evidence is faith, trust in the gospel. Start with verse 14. And we have seen... And testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. And He in God. So what's the root of brotherly love? It's right there. It's faith in the historical event of Jesus from Nazareth that was delivered by Jesus' chosen eyewitnesses, His apostles. And we have seen, He was there, and we testify, He just sums it all up this way. He can talk for hours on it. Here's His summary. That the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior 
of the world. John was an eyewitness who lived and traveled with Jesus, his close friend. John witnessed his miracles, his healings. He witnessed his preaching and his teaching. He witnessed his brutal, torturous, bloody death. He was there at the tomb. The body is hard. And he witnessed on the third day, the twelfth day, the fifteenth day, and numbers of other times for five weeks after his death, he witnessed his human bodily resurrection life in eating with him and talking with him. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And then John, in verse 15, draws a conclusion from that gospel. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, guess what? God abides in Him. And He or she abides in God. He just said the evidence that one is born again, that, it, that a person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God is how they respond to the words. To the words of the Gospel. To the words that the apostles, the eyewitnesses, testified about Jesus of Nazareth and the way to eternal salvation. That the Father has sent the Son. He sent Him to die so that Joe LeMay, the eternal, just, pure, and holy hell that you deserve for your sinfulness at the core of your being and all your acts may be turned away from you and meted out on my Son in true humanity on the cross. You hear that message? You say, yes, that's me. And on the third day, God raised Him from the dead and you somehow, through as much evidence as you can glean, is it just fiction? Is it just religion? Whatever it is, you come and say, I know that's why I exist. That's true. And that's your confession. That's how you know you're born again. See, of course he doesn't mean if we can string this guy up here and place electrodes to his body, keep pushing the button, and say, all you got to do is confess Jesus is your Lord and that you think He's your Savior. Ask Him to come in your heart and you'll be saved. Look, obviously He's not saved if He does that. This, John's, this is not what He's talking about. It's not some magical thing. I confess Jesus. The confession is coming from this heartfelt agreement with the truth of the apostles. Yes! Awesome! My wife and I and kids were there and Teresa last night got to 
sit with a woman who numbers of years ago we went to church with her and her husband her husband's a believer and there were never true signs that she was saved she would kind of say she's a Christian it was clear her life she just really hated church but she called us up a few months ago because she just has because she would come to church and stuff like that and she knew us and she just had to say tell us how happy she is of what Jesus has done in her life. And even in her darkened days, she remembers our influence on her life. And this is all within the last year. And to hear her say it, that's where her confession was coming from. It was coming from God sovereignly invaded her life and her affections and opened her eyes finally. What is she probably? Late 40s. Now, that's what John means by confession. That's why he said uh, just a few verses earlier, remember, whoever knows God, that's how you can tell who they are. They listen to us, apostles. They listen to the New Testament. They're moved by it. They understand the gravity of it, the importance of it. So like, they listen to us. Whoever is not from God, it evidences itself. They do not listen to us. And John concludes, by this you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so that's why John or we can give the testimony of verse 14. That God has sent the Son into the world to save the world, to save sinners. And then we can say, look, as you hear that, do you listen? Do you have ears to hear? Is it sweeter than all the world? Is that your confession? Absolutely. Then, according to verse 15, we can say, you're born of God. You're born again. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In other words, that's proof that God abides in you. Because that is impossible unless God the Spirit abides in you. So then John sums all of this up. In other words, who are the real Christians? Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. The experience of being saved is manifested through abiding in love. God's love for you and that love working through you. It's the fruit of genuine Holy Spirit produced saving faith. And that's what verse 12 was all about where we started. No one has ever seen God. He's not physical. If we love 
one another. You see the effects of God in you. God abides in us. And so what John does here in this passage is he lays out the twofold test of who is a genuine Christian and who's not. It's twofold. It's not just one side of a coin. They're both there. And they both interpret one another. On one side is faith. It is a heart that hears, it gravitates, I believe that gospel of salvation that God has sent His Son to save me. And you say, yes! You want to know why? Look at the other side of the coin. Because there is this supernatural affection that works itself out in action towards others who are saved from the fire. Towards others who have the same Spirit dwelling in them. So, I think this, this passage just screams with application for us right now, today, in our lives. So let me just kind of unfold some. Here's the question that the text presses against each one of our consciences. Does your heart gravitate to the testimony of the apostles? Do you have a hunger to eat, to know, to read? To hear preached the Bible? Are you, are you thirsty as the deer pants for the water brook in 105 degree heat? Is, is there a thirst for the testimony of the apostles? The Word of God. That's the first question. Let me go back to where I started. See, the question is not. Did you ask Jesus into your heart way back when? The question is not, did you say the sinner's prayer? Did you get baptized? Did you become a church member? That's not the question of this text. The question is, do you have ears to hear? To listen? Those who are of God, listen to us. You have ears to want to be changed because you, you, you're so aware of how sinful you remain. You're so aware of your hidden thoughts and that you say, God, today I'm desperate. I need you. Let your word and your spirit work in me. That's a sign that you belong to Him. So, see, don't get it wrong. The question isn't, hey, do you ever have dark nights of the soul? Or do you ever have dry times in the Bible in your Christian life? Or a bad week of not loving anybody but doing the opposite? Look, yes you do. Welcome to Christianity. So don't, okay, that's being a Christian. Here's the question in your journey. 
is the ongoing direction of your life. A desire to listen. To be renewed by the Word of God. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they do follow me. So, the application, or one of the applications of this text is this. Is that you? Those who are of God, they listen to the Scripture. Another application is to just know this truth. Let me give you a foundation that when your heart, when your affections become hardened, when unloving feelings and behavior towards others becomes easier and easier and easier, it is always connected to moving away from the voice of Jesus in the Scripture. All you have to do, and I, I speak not just as a pastor in Bible, I speak by experience. All you have to do, say to yourself, how is your Bible time? No, no, I do Bible time. That's not, no, 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 no. Not whether you did some perfunctory 10-minute thing. How is your time with God? Do you get angry when you get bored at the Bible until you fight in prayer to say, I know how to read everything in the world except the Bible? It's not an intellectual problem. It is a spiritual sickness. The Bible in your translation is written at a nice 8th grade level. So do you cry out, God? Let me feast upon it. Because when our love towards others is getting hard, Take it right back to your relationship with God in the Scripture. Take it back to your prayer life. Do you pray? Yes, I say my prayers. That's not what I mean. Do you pray? Do you press in? Do, do you get rid of all religious, say the right things to God who knows everything and just pour out your heart like the Psalms? Demonstrate we should and be dead honest with your sin and then be honest with the Scripture. Say, this is what I want. Do you pray? Do you have discussions with other believers on planet Earth? Do you put yourself in home groups, in small groups, where you're not merely talking about sports, 
or a thousand other items, which we all do. It's part of life. But where the Word of God is coming through others and you put yourself in that vulnerable position. Go back. When our hearts are hardened, you can go back to those basic Christian disciplines and say, that's where it started. And the glory of it is, this day, to whatever extent we need to, you can repent and say, oh, God. See, when you are very aware of your hardness of heart toward God, toward His Word, and towards other people. Here's, here's the question. Here's the application of this text. Do you feel godly guilt? Do you feel godly guilt that breaks you and brings you back to repentance and feasting upon His Word in prayer, in private, and in the community of Jesus. Another application is this. When you hear clear, non-fuzzy truth revealed from the Bible, and whatever forms, classes, teaching, reading the Bible, yourself, expository sermons. When you hear, hold on, I'm almost done. I don't just sit down right for a second. We're almost done here. Just go sit down. When you hear teaching on justification by faith alone, well, that's hard to understand. Yeah. So you give it five minutes and give up. But when you hear, it's right there in Romans 3. When you hear it, when you hear teaching on sin, on heaven, on the torments of eternal hell, when you hear biblical teaching on church life and on the fruit of the Spirit, here's the application. Does your heart leap with joy? Is Christ the greatest treasure to you. That's what the text is pressing upon us. And from that Word of God, the faith, that's the faith part. We, verse 14, are eyewitnesses and we testify, and thus whoever confesses, there's faith. Now, the other evidence is love. Do you yearn to love more deeply, more tangibly, and more practically other people? When you read Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6, what's the top one? Love, joy, peace, Patience. Another hard one here. Kindness. Gentleness. Self-control. When you read, here's the fruit that Spirit's bearing in the Christian lives. 
Are you moved to pray and say, God, I fall so short. Please work these things in me, starting with how I treat my spouse. People at work, fellow Christians, church members. Help me love from the heart. That's what John meant earlier in the, in, in the letter. Truly, in love and truth. And help me see that work its way out in, in practical, sacrificial ways. Does the Scripture cause you to pray and to strategize, to attack and fight your unloving, self-centered attitudes and actions? that are in you and me and all believers. And when you sin against another, here's the application of this passage. Does it grieve you and bring you to Jesus pleading forgiveness? Chapter 1, verse 9 Begging that the Father by the Holy Spirit would cause faith to arise. That it would work itself out in your loving behavior. And thus starting with going to that person and asking for forgiveness. The core of this text says, Is the flow of your life to live for the eternal good of others? Or are all your thoughts and dreams and daily choices aimed at worldly comfort and desires? If we spend all of our time and all of our money and all of our patience and all of our giftings based upon getting more and more temporal comfort and convenience over the good of others. Okay. If that's happening right now, the question is, do you sense the Holy Spirit putting up red flags? If you do, that's a good sign. And so let me close by just saying, Jesus saves to the uttermost. He did not just purchase our coming to Him and now go see how well you do. He purchased everything. Our coming to Him and our Christian life throughout. He who began a good work will complete it until Jesus' second coming. And therefore, the exhortation of this text is, brothers and sisters in Jesus, fight. Constantly fight and never give up the battle with your flesh and your sin. Hate it. Use every weapon that God has given to you. A book in your hands called the Bible. 
ability to pray and to fellowship with other believers and hear the preached Word. Use them and battle so that the flow of loving others would be more evident in your life and your assurance would excel all the more. Father, do this. And I say do it, Father. We're desperate to pray this kind of prayer in one way or another, day after day. And ten years from now, this prayer will be needed for every one of us. We know that, but we know how you're pleased when we are moved by the truth of your word. And we ask of you, change us to another degree of glory. Lord Jesus, as you have drawn us close, we do hear you say they will know you belong to me because of the way you love each other. Oh, that's so impossible left to ourselves. That's so impossible left to our flesh. That's so impossible, Father, without Your Word daily penetrating our heart and breaking our arrogance and our pride and our stubbornness. And so, Father, on behalf of all of us here at Sovereign Grace, I plead with You, do the miraculous. Do the miraculous to the glory of Your Son.